In a complex world brimming with new ambitions, the best leaders create the best workplaces. This is the Oil & Gas Digital Doers podcast, where you can hear real stories about digital capabilities and a culture of empowerment with your host, Joanne Meyer. Welcome to the Oil & Gas Global Network's Digital Doers podcast. And I'm here today with someone I'm most excited to talk with because he can talk about so many different things. Not only is he a petroleum engineer, but he's also, well, he calls himself a digital immigrant. But for any digital immigrant, he, he's got to be approaching some of that native stuff, I, at least for capability. And so I'm really excited to be able to talk today with Jim Crompton. And we're going to hear he's he spent time with large um, oil and gas companies. Um, he has been a consultant, and he now is in academia. He's an author, so I can't wait to, to get a lot of wisdom today and insights from Jim. But before we jump into that, I do need to say something about our sponsor, um, which is HPE. And if you get a chance, go take a look at hpe.com. And in particular, take a look at their new platform called HPE GreenLake. And it's all about bringing a cloud experience to you wherever you need that, whether it's at your edges, your co-locations, wherever your data and apps live. Um, they want to make sure that you have a good experience, um, even if you're not on this public space. They want to bring it to you. So if you get a chance, uh, go take a look at hpe.com. And as I mentioned up front, this is the Digital Doers podcast as part of the Oil and Gas Global Network. The Oil and Gas Global Network is the largest community of podcasts for the oil and gas industry. I think uh, we are, we're going to approach 3 million downloads uh, sometime later this year. So uh, check out the other podcasts out there. But with that, we're going to get started with Jim Crompton. And Jim retired from Chevron in 2013 after almost 37 years. Um, he has He went on then to do, like I said, some consulting. And now he's in academia at the Colorado School of Mines. He has been recognized with many awards, one of them being SPE's Distinguished Lecturer, and it was in 2010-11, and he was speaking on the topic of putting the focus on data. He continues to be a frequent speaker for SPE. He's also involved in organizations like PNEC um, and also, is it PPDM? Is that a part of PNEC, Jim? No, it's an independent standards group out of Calgary. Okay. All right. So he does all kinds of things um, to not only, you know, uh, deliver in whatever endeavor and for whatever group he may be engaged with, but he does a great deal, it sounds like, for the community to um, help establish standards, standards. Uh, uh, improve communication across companies and all across the organization. 
Jim also was um, given the President's Award for much of his work or some of his work at uh, Chevron, and he's also an author. Uh, Jim has authored three books that have been published, I guess, and maybe he's working on another one. And so with that, I think uh, he teaches at School of Mines, and uh, this fall, I guess it's called Petroleum Data Analytics. And so with that, Jim, I'm going to let you maybe tell us about uh, some other parts of what you do um, as you introduce yourself a little more. Well, thank you, Joanne. I appreciate the invitation to uh, uh, to be part of the podcast. I guess in, in my uh, chapter of my life, I guess, is kind of give back time is how I kind of uh, see a lot of these things. And um, since I retired, which is now nearly 10 years ago, uh, and even came maybe a little bit before that, it was, uh, you know, kind of a, an understanding of I'd have a very unique experience with the digital oil field or whatever term uh, people call around that. And it was, uh, uh, you know, I found a lot of different um, avenues, you know, teaching being the latest one, but uh, uh, even um, or organizations like Society of Petroleum Engineers, they have their digital energy technology section. I was a speaker in those conferences for years. And then finally, uh, you know, on the, um, the, the organizing board, uh, you know, for it. And so there was, uh, I mean, there, it, it, it's interesting that it, there's a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. There, there's also a lot of challenges and barriers kind of behind the scenes. And, the, you know, the dirty laundry sometimes is the stuff that doesn't get talked about enough. And, um, you know, I, you know, I, I kind of like to sit and, and say everything's not wonderful. There, and here, there's a few potholes along the road and, you know, watch out for them and uh, don't make the same mistakes I did. Yeah. You know, those kind of... Uh, uh, lessons learned, if if you will. Right. I think uh, the industry uh, and even, you know, the s- developers, suppliers to the industry, ne- they need to understand everything isn't wonderful and they need to plan for it. And uh, if they understand the issues around change management, they understand the issues around data foundation, they understand these issues, then, you know, it isn't just, you know, buy my wonderful app and everything will be great. Uh, it, it takes a little bit more work than that. Yeah. I think that's a great way of looking at it, um, and I I would agree with you. My my much less experience um, with digital capability in the upstream oil and gas space, but I would I would ag- agree with you. I think there's challenges, uh, even as there's been a lot of progress made over the the last few years. Jim, I I want to talk a little bit about your. One of your most recent articles, um, it, uh, it's called Transition Part Two. What does a digital immigrant say to a digital native? And in there, you talk about that there have been four stages to digital transformation, if you will, in the upstream oil and gas industry. So you say there are four stages and, um, and the first one is called, What's the Big Deal? And so talk to us a little bit about those four stages and, and feel free as you're, you know, hitting on them. Talk to us a little bit about the warts, right, that, that maybe were discovered in that stage and uh, if those have been resolved or, or if they continue to be challenges for us. 
Well, thanks. Uh, just just first a minute of context. Uh, when I probably back in the 2008, 2009, I was head of a group in Chevron IT department called Corporate Architecture. And I had one of the architects come up to me and said, Jim, you're, you're really a great writer, storyteller. We'd like you to start writing a blog for our website to attract, you know, kind of eyeballs to what I was doing. And in typical digital immigrant fashion, I said, what's a blog, right? I mean, that, <laughs> that, that's kind of uh, part of this. What does a digital uh, immigrant say to a digital native? There, there's a whole vo- vocabulary that um, people of my generation have to learn. And, and we'll never get it down completely, but uh, at least if we, we get competency about some of these, uh, the vocabulary, it improves uh, communication. So I, start, I started writing a, a kind of a monthly article for that website. When I retired, I guess I got the itch and I kept going. So I um, adopted on, on LinkedIn as my platform. I just started writing articles about whatever it is that um, that struck me. And... Um, I and my the third book that I have, which is called the Digital Canterbury Tales, I actually kind of released on LinkedIn. One article, one chapter at a time, was one article. So uh, that that got me uh, going on all this. But to get to your point, the, the latest one, I started thinking about transitions. I mean, you hear a lot about all kinds of different transitions these days, from energy transition to digital transitions to you know, there's demographics, there's cultural, there's there's a whole pile of them. So I decided to sit down and and write a little bit about that. And um, I guess I've been fortunate where the my my experience to kind of live through the last twenty years or so of what the digital oil field has started as and then turned out to be. This first stage, and I, and you can describe it in a number of ways. I I'm not par- trying to pretend that's the right way or only way of of describing these stages, but I, I talked about the first stage, and this is probably somewhere around the end of uh, the 1990s, early two, uh, 20, 2000s. And as I said, you know, what was the big deal? Because that's when a lot of companies, uh, particularly digital companies, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley type companies, started approaching uh, the oil and gas industry and said, look at all this stuff that we've got that you're not taking advantage of. Yes, you use email. Yes, you use spreadsheets. Yes, you use, you know, uh, corporate apps like uh, Oracle or, or or SAP and things like that. But look, look at all this other stuff that you could be doing. And so the first reaction when it hit the upstream, and I'm, I'm an upstreamer, so I'm you're going to get an awful lot of a view from exploration production side of things. Um You've had you had a particular community within the upstream, largely the geophysicists, the petrophysicists, the reservoir characterization uh, engineers, who that their response was, "What's the big deal? We've been using data forever, right? Ever since there was a piece of data recorded, I've been trying to build a better model from it, right?" And the the seismic people, the geophysicists were processing seismic data, and those volumes were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and we were you know, putting the lights out on our, our data centers. The, uh, and I'm a geophysicist by background, so I guess that, that's where I grew up with. I call the geophysicists the first digital community within oil and gas. Um, and, of course, the well-log people, the petrophysicists, had their digital data. And the reservoir ma- characterization people were all taking a, trying to take all of this data and then turn it into their uh, reservoir 
prediction models, computational fluid dynamics. They're they're the big physicists, you know, within oil and gas, and they looked at uh, what Silicon Valley was offering and said, "What's the big deal? I mean, we're doing all of this stuff." Now there was another whole community in the upstream, the production people, drilling people, uh, facility people weren't using it. They weren't really part of that traditional, you know, digital community, analytics community. And that's really where this really started. They weren't big data consumers at one point. No, I mean, they? Every, all, their whole lives could be held in an Excel spreadsheet, right? So yeah. Um, yeah. other than that, they didn't know that digital could change anything they were doing, right? right. So that first um, reaction was uh, essentially the people who had been doing analysis for a long time, you know, kind of said, we're already there. You know, what right. what, what can we learn from you? Now, the, that siloed sort of view or vertical discipline sort of view, you know, is, is still strong in the industry. We haven't completely turned from vertical to horizontal, like could be enterprise workflows or something like that. It would be a horizontal kind of application. We're still, uh, there's some of the people are still very much focused on, it's often called functional excellence. Um, you know, I want to, I want the seismic data to be absolutely as good as I can, and I don't care about anything else. Or I want the the reservoir model to be as good as I can, and I don't care about the production history and stuff. So uh, there still is a lot of that siloed thinking, and it's largely go all the way back because that's how we educate engineers. We educate them to be functionally excellent. And although now it's the education platform is broader, it's still that's a real challenge. Thinking horizontally, integration across the silos, that has been, that was a challenge in stage one. It's a challenge in stage four. Uh, and it's the one that we continue to try to uh, to work on. Okay. So that's interesting. And if I, so it is this horizontal type process, um, you think that is particularly challenging even today what do you think makes it so difficult for us in the upstream to think horizontally? Uh, that's a great question. And I think it, it, it's one that um, frustrates a lot of people, particularly, you know, uh, technology vendors who come in and said, you know, we'll just change your culture, right? Well, changing <laughs> your culture, it's not easy to do. Uh, famous, I think as a MIT, or, or not our Harvard Business Review article said, you know, culture eats strategy for lunch. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so culture is the answer, but what is culture? Um, culture is, uh, even it could be organizational. And when I started, you know, a long time ago, uh, disciplines were, we were organized. The reservoir engineers work for a reservoir engineering department and the geophysicists work for the geophysics exploration department, et cetera. So we were organized that way. We were managed that way. We were rewarded that way. We were taught that way. And uh, so thinking vertically, thinking in terms of excellence of your function and not so much the view of the whole asset lifecycle um, is, is really in our DNA. And yeah. changing the DNA has been a long effort. I mean, right. 20 years and we're still going at it right, yeah. uh, with regard to those things. So uh, it's, you know, it's, you know there, there have been big changes. And, you know, one of them, the asset team development in the late 1990s. That change said we won't we we want one view of the subsurface. So 
we brought reservoir engineers and geoscientists together in one organizational unit. And then all of a sudden the software industry started like Landmark and Schlumberger. They started accommodating that and getting us integration among some pieces of our data. But, but the other part of it is, is, is actually kind of fascinating with my work on data standards is we have different languages. Yes. Um, Even within one well? company. Yeah. You know, what is a well is a whole different thing to a driller than to a um, reservoir engineer or to a production engineer, a facility engineer. So breaking down the tribal languages uh, with standards and also then, you know, we not only want the humans to understand what we're talking about, we now want the machines and the algorithms to understand what we're talking about. So having a common language has been part of the the, the missing piece right. uh, across all these things. We have languages that are fit for purpose within these functions and work right. very well, but, but not one see. that speaks across everything. There have been yeah. some efforts to do that, but that's a huge effort. Yeah. But you can see how not having one language uh, really hinders this ability to look at things horizontally. Yeah, because you aren't speaking the same language. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, even, great. even the CFO, when, of course, and they've done a better job with their ERP systems. You know, the whole idea of, you know, bridging revenue accounting and cost accounting and procurement and and all of the aspects of the financial things, they need a common chart of accounts. They need right. a common way of uh, units of measure or things measured right. in dollars or euros. What's the transformation? All the rest of it. They, but they've conquered it. They've done a much better job. Yeah. And with uh, so, with software platforms that were horizontal, that, yeah. that uh, they've been more successful than maybe the different tribal groups in the upstream. So it's interesting. I worked for a boss one time, and he rightfully so said, we can't count people, we can't count vehicles, we can't count wells. And the whole notion was, when we tried to count them, you know, what the reservoir engineers, how they counted their wells was very different than the way the guys in the field counted their wells. And it was the same even with people. Right, because you had contractors and you had employees and you had just kind of the transient uh, contractors that come in, you know, that aren't regular day in and day out. Um, we had leased vehicles, we had owned vehicles, just so it, we couldn't count them because we couldn't define them. Great example. I mean, uh, just the idea of how many wells do you have? Um, yeah. A driller will count a well based on uh, surface location. Yep. A reservoir engineer will count a wells on how many reservoir interceptions yep. you have. Right. So do you have one well or do you have six? And yep. uh, with the deviated sort of wells right now. And that is a, is a matter of definition because both are the right answers. Right. But they're probably not the answer management wanted it when, when he asked the question. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so talk to us now. So now in stage one, there's uh, this a little bit of this notion of, you know, some folks, uh, your, a lot of your subsurface, highly technical folks, petrophysicists, geophysicists, that are saying, so what? We've been using this stuff a long time. So then, uh, but that wasn't true all across the organization. But then in stage two, what what happened? Jim. Well, it's it's kind of an explosion happened in the a data explosion happened in the other areas, particularly facilities. And um, 
you know, it wasn't that all of the great analytical work that was being done in the subsurface was migrated to facilities and surface facilities. It actually came from manufacturing. And all of a sudden, process automation, uh, sensors got cheaper, sensors got more rugged. Um, and all of a sudden, we were putting, we were going from 100 sensors on an offshore platform in the Gulf of Mexico to 1,000 or 10,000. Uh, and they started resembling um, plant plant manufacturing sort of things. And then even more recently, in the last 10 years or so, drilling has turned into almost a manufacturing sort of procedure that we drill not just one well as a custom design, we drill 100 wells just the same way. Just the same. And just keep building them, you know, banging them out like post holes. And of course, we've gotten tremendous efficiency from that. But it really became because we had so much data from a manufacturing plant facility equipment side of things. And that's to me where stage two exploded is now all of a sudden, instead of uh, having not, not very much data, only the data I could handle on my spreadsheet to a data where we fill up an enterprise historian or we fill up, you know, all kinds of a, a megabyte of data a day from a, a drilling well or something. And all of a sudden we had so much more data available in the field. Yes that people started saying, well, what do we do with it? Right. And yet, um, I suspect, or and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I suspect uh, we had this explosion of data, and yet it wasn't all uniformly defined or standards on definitions. Not at all. I mean, even, it, and often the, the data was unique to the type of system you bought. You might have I bought think. a SCADA system from company X, our SCADA system from company B, and they didn't talk the same language. So there was this, uh, you know, uh, an historian is a very, very simple database. It just has tag name type, tag stamp and a measurement sort of functions. But what does a tag mean? I mean, we get back to our idea of, you know, how many pumps do we have out there? Well, nobody knows because you can't count tags, they change. Um, So yes, we developed that, that data, although... There was an explosion. It was not organized. It was not consistent. It was not top-down. It was bottom-up. Right. Got you. Okay. So that then gets us into now thinking a little bit about stage three. So we are, we've continued this kind of data challenge and the issues that non-standard data, how that hinders this ability to look at uh, a horizontal process. And so now we get to stage three. Well, I think the the motivation for stage three came from management because they started asking what's happening today. I mean, the, the lack of connectivity between the field and the office meant that our production forecasts were usually monthly or quarterly or our reservoir reserve calculations were annual. or And so we had a pretty long cycle time from the rest of that. But now management kind of recognized that, well, there's all this data in the field. I could get a daily drilling report. The, the CFO said I could close the books every week if I wanted to. If I could have the capability. So stage three was really connecting field to office. And so there was a part of it that was communication because in some cases – you had fiber. In some cases, you had um, 
uh, just satellite communication and latency and performance issues were there. But we began to find different ways to link the data we were collecting in the field to the office, and we really sped up uh, the time of our decision-making and so that we could intervene or we could do what-if analysis or we could do I mean, we started to do all sorts of, we could do optimization analysis. We started to do all these different things because we could link the data from the field to the office. And frequently our big data crunchers, our scientists were in the office and the engineers and the operators, the maintenance folks were out in the field and they were totally separate unless you got on a plane, got on a pickup truck and drove out and visited them, you know, they, they're, and then carried back some data with the, uh, uh, on a on a computer now you had a mobility you now you have the the connectivity now you have cloud computing now you have all of these different things that said we can be you know it's not real date time data but it's near real time data and make it available to whoever wants it and we could share it with partners we could share it with the supply chain we could share it with our service contractors we could even heaven help us share it with our regulators. Right. And, and, and all those different things become possible because of connectivity. I, I give a lecture I call the convergence of OT and IT. OT meaning the field, operational technologies, process automation systems, and the big IT systems that kind of sit and, and run the office. And the, 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 how they manage data and how they run, uh, you know, the larger uh, uh, computing models. Okay. All right. So... So that brings us then to this stage four. And so tell us a little bit about what that's about. Well, this is another interesting kind of transformation because what we now have is, you know, of course, we, the, the people in the office have been physics-based driven in their work for a long time. And, and yes, there has been some statistical analysis, trend analysis things that have been part of the toolkit of the office. But now we have this new animal called a data scientist. And what are they? And they are they, they, they come from operation research. They come from statistics. They come from applied mathematics backgrounds, not physics-based backgrounds. And they're coming and said, hey, I, I can build a model. with If you give me a lot of data, I can build you a model and without even understanding how the model works. It's black box. Like data-driven sort of models. And of course, that brings up the whole idea of machine learning, artificial intelligence, trying to get an algorithm to think like a human being, neural networks, uh, a whole series of new analytical techniques and the languages that come with them. Instead of SQL and Fortran, we now have Python and R, and we've got a different way of managing the, all of this data. And that you know we can start to build models on things that we don't yet understand the physics of, and that opens up a whole new area of optimization because we we don't have a physics-based model on how a pump works, but we got a ton of data, and we can create something that may not be perfect, may not be precise, but helps us make better decisions, and that, and that's the goal. You know, I would say that it's not the company who has the most data that wins. It's not. It's a company that makes the better decisions with the data they have that wins because of the better decisions. So we, we're, it's a drive to better decisions, not more data or fancier technology. And if you can get to that, 
that is what um, is the big win. And I think that's the the convergence here of the digital immigrants and the digital natives. The digital natives know how to make these new correlation algorithms sing. I mean, they're magic programmers. And way I'll never learn Python like my students know, right? Um, so I don't try to teach them that. That would be stupid. Uh, they could teach me. Uh, but what I try to teach them is what the purpose is, what the goal is, what the what is it you're trying to solve? Optimization of artificial lift, uh, maintenance of critical equipment, uh, even better production decline forecasts. I mean, it's the what. That's what the the problem you're trying to solve is what digital immigrants can still bring to the party. Okay, that's a great way of looking at it, right? It's that perspective of of what's the real value from having all this uh, additional digital capability. What's the real value proposition there that you're saying the immigrants probably have some of that perspective that the natives, maybe just by how many years they've been on this earth, just and how much experience, they, they just don't quite have that. Well, unfortunately, I don't know of a way of accelerating experience. I mean, that yeah. that's just takes time, right? And yeah. I heard a talk one time at an SBE conference where a new uh, PhD, a student had was presenting his work, and he he was tackling the problem of stuck pipe in a drilling scenario, a very real problem. And he talked about the data he had, and he we did um, dimension reduction, and he did coordinate transformation, and he did surrogate vector machine, and he did all this <laughs> stuff that nobody really knew what they was talking about. And finally, some old driller got up and said, "What do I do with this data? This model you produced." And the student said, I don't know. I've never seen a stuck pipe. And you just go, wow. oh, yeah. you just spent three years doing, you know, work that isn't going to help anybody create value. Uh, and probably his professor didn't know anything about stuck pipe either. So wow. you, you, need the, you need a balance of what are the problems. Yeah. And that's experience-based. And then what are the new ways of trying to solve them? And that's the digital, what's the digital native is bringing. Both add value. Yeah. But both need to learn how to talk to each other. Yeah. That's a great example about the stuck pipe. Yeah, that's a great example. Okay, so so I really like the way that you've, uh, you know, kind of uh, bucketed the, the digital transformation. And I think it's really it's insightful, you know, some of what you, how you characterize those different stages. And so... You mentioned a, a couple, but is there anything else? Um, is there a, a another, what's stage five? Is there a stage five? Um, or well, what do you see that looking like, Jim? Well, I think there is. And I, th I think the magic is called autonomy. It's okay. these systems become self-aware and run themselves. Um, okay. we are in a, we're in a phase of automation which is you can get machines to behave the way you want them to behave through rules and barriers and bounds and stuff like that. So that, that's automation. Autonomy is a system that doesn't have to be, is, can operate without, I mean, it begins with rules. That, that helps the training system. But it but then begins to think outside the bounds. Um, you know, like NASA with their space uh, administration, it's too far out with latency to be able to send a command to a 
a spacecraft and say, you need to change course to miss the comet, right? The, the, the spacecraft has to go figure out, here's a comet coming at me and we're on the same collision path and I need to make these changes yeah. without, before the human being, uh, you know, he still could be asleep, right? Yeah. Uh, that's autonomy. That's stage five. And okay. if we get there, we're, we're talking about autonomous cars and we've got drones and we've got some of this capability that's starting to, that you can see in our, in our economy. But I mean, it doesn't always work perfect, right? The, the first couple of um, autonomous cars, you know, ran into jaywalkers and things like that. So right. uh, it didn't all, it isn't going to work the first time. It's going to have to take time to learn. It's, those autonomous cars are going to have to drive 10 million miles before they figure out, you know, when to stop, when to brake and stuff like that. But but they're getting there. And, and so right. that stage five is autonomy for Excellent. the machine. Excellent. So before we uh, sign off here, I, I would like to hear your thoughts on um, talk a little bit about these natives, these digital natives and the challenges that may or may not exist for attracting them to the oil and gas industry and then retaining them. You have any thoughts on that? Well, it's a, it's a real issue. I mean, um, you can look at the data and the, and this, the enrollment in petroleum engineering programs in the United States is way down. So it's, there's already this issue. And some of it is oil and gas isn't cool yeah. uh, impression. Oil and gas is low tech, which is wrong, but it is the impression. And then oil and gas is just dangerous to the to environment and to our economy, which, again, so you've got a lot of moms and dads and uncles and saying, you know, don't don't go get a computer science degree, get a math degree, right. uh, get an environmental engineering degree. And um, and so right from the very beginning, um, you've got a problem of attraction. Yeah. Then, you know, oil and gas... Well, I guess it shoots itself in the foot with our cyclical hire and fire, uh, you know, kind of behavior around when the commodity prices go up and down that we, we say people are our most important resource. And then when prices uh, dive way down, we fire a bunch of people, right? So that, that, that it, employees then begin to wonder if that's really true. And um, and then they don't come back maybe when, after they are laid off or something like that. So there is a there is an attraction challenge, and and that you get that hopefully by just explaining just how high tech and how cool oil and gas really is. Then you have a retention one, which really has to be about uh, the people taking control of their career and saying that that energy drives life. So, and we need energy and we, you know, we can't, and the, the complexities of the energy transition, et cetera, they need petroleum engineers to solve many of these problems. They need chemical engineers and mechanical engineers. They need geoscientists. They need all this stuff. If you're going to sequester carbon, if you're going to uh, use geothermal, if you're going to use, you know, whatever form of, of, these, of, of the, what the utility has to drive power, electrification. It still needs those engineers to be able to make all this stuff work. Yeah, yeah, excellent. We we talk sometimes here on the show with some younger uh, folks, and some of them are definitely digital natives, and they have you know taken this more entrepreneurial path, 
uh, some of them are engineers, but they've taken this more entrepreneurial path. And sometimes, you know, we talk about the fact that they wonder if the way to attract this um, talent and retain it, this younger talent, um, is something about the big oil and gas companies um, not having to insource everything. Um, about they don't have to uh, insource everything because of some of this traditional culture that exists perhaps in the larger companies. And so one of the thoughts is that some of the ways that you actually get that talent in the industry is through uh, leveraging these uh, smaller entrepreneurial um, companies to provide external services to the company. So I don't know what your thoughts might be on that. Well, clearly that's the trend. And Minds has started up an innovation and entrepreneurial uh, group building a new building on campus for the kind of the startup uh, innovation lab sort of mentality. So clearly we know that is an attractive proposition. And, and I think that's what I'm seeing is that often it is a smaller or mid-sized company that is driving the innovation rather than the big guys. And it is because they have a ecosystem uh, attitude. They not, don't want to have to own everything, right? I can remember back, you know, big oil companies own their own dr- drilling rigs. They own their own seismic crews. They right. own everything, right? And Workover um, rigs, yeah. it did become cumbersome and it did become yeah. administrative. And um, it wasn't the fastest decision-making environment right. that you could say. Now the industry has to be more nimble. It has to be more flexible. It has to respond to all these things. So there's no question to me that there's going to be a lot of smaller startups that offer great value. Of course, a, a startup, everybody says you're always going to make a billion dollars, right? And, and nine out of 10 <laughs> fail. But uh, right. as long as you understand that, um, there will be startups that will grow into companies that add very meaningful product. Right. And they won't have to be owned by the sure. uh, the client that, that, that uses them. Uh, there, there'll have to be many more people at the table uh, with different business cards. They won't all look the like. They won't all have the same. You know, I, I benefited from an era where I could have many different careers and one paycheck, 37 years with one company. Yes. That's a great way of looking at it. But now um, most of those careers will come from different companies altogether. Yep. Great, great. Well, thank you. Well, listen, Jim, I really appreciate you being on the call today and uh, giving us this history lesson and also uh, a little bit of looking into the future around the digital transformation in the oil and gas industry. So I really appreciate your time. That's one of the things an immigrant can do is provide that historical context. (laughs) So thank you very much for the invitation. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, great, great. Well, thanks again, Jim. And so this uh, wraps up this episode of our Digital Doers podcast. And uh, once again, want to say thank you to our sponsor, HPE. And as I said, please go take a look at hpe.com and, and look at that Green Lake platform. So until next time, so long.
Come back next week for another venture into the real world of the best digital doers in the oil and gas industry. A production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.